Romans chapter 9, if you'd like to turn and look with us. Um, we went through, and really pretty quickly, through about verse 11 last week. You're in a tough place of trying to get all of the Scripture together in context, as well as pick it apart uh, and try to cover everything well with Scripture through the Bible to back it up. So I felt like we moved pretty quickly last time, and so we're going to review just for a minute. So he began this chapter with his desire, his heaviness, his burden on his heart for his kinsmen, according to the flesh, Israel. This is Paul that's writing this. He's an Israelite. Paul knows what it is to be delivered from the old covenant, from the old religion, to be liberated, to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, to enjoy the goodness and the love of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's desire for his kinsmen is that they could experience and know the same thing that he's got. He knows what it is to be a sinner. And I believe that's the way the church is. We know what it is to be lost. We know what it is to be in the world and to be uh, overcome of sin. And we know what it is to be liberated. You know, only the church knows that. Only the church knows what it is to be freed from sin and the bondage of corruption. And only the church knows what it is to truly be loved by God in the inward man and for Him to dwell with you. The world does not know that. So isn't it natural then that we would desire that same thing that we've received for our kinsmen and fellow man to receive that as well? That's the way Paul was. Paul desired that they would be saved. And we noted last time, we'll see it more in the next couple chapters, if they were all going to be saved because of their lineage and bloodline, then why would Paul pray a prayer like this? Why would... Why would he be continually, and that word there, perpetual? It's all the time, continually, sorrowful and heavy in his heart if they were going to be saved at the end. It's got nothing to do with the flesh, but it is the grace of God. So he, he then speaks of all that God, uh, Brad talked about benefits, all of the benefits that God gave Israel that the rest of the world did not have. He gave them enlightenment and knowledge and understanding of His pure and perfect righteousness and of His uh, view of sin, of the judgment that was to come and that blood had to be shed in order to pay for those sins. He revealed to them by the prophets that His Son Jesus was going to come he was going to be the sacrifice and He was going to provide the salvation through His work that they could be saved. All of that was revealed in the Old Testament. They had that revealed to them and the rest of the world did not have that revelation like Israel had. We have Scripture in Amos. You of all the nations of the earth, only you have I known. O Israel. So God gave them benefits that others didn't have. Well, you could say the same thing about us gathered in the church house today 
and churches all over our world where the gospel is preached, they have an advantage and a benefit that to God's truth, the majority, and I don't know what percentage, I'd be afraid to say, what percentage of our world, the 7.3 billion people on the earth, have of knowing the true righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Very few. What a benefit that God's provided us as well. But God gave them all of this revelation, all of this knowledge, all of this uh, benefit, all of this illumination, things that they could not have known of themselves. We couldn't know God of ourselves. We couldn't study physics or calculus or psychology and learn one thing about God. Everything we know of God has been given to us of God. God has provided, He has revealed, and He has illuminated our hearts that we might know Him. They had this benefit directly from the hand of God. And yet, here they are. Jesus Christ has came. The vast majority has rejected Him. They've had Him crucified. And they do not recognize Him as the Son of God. They are abiding in unbelief. Now how in the world can that be? And this is the conclusion. Well, God wasted all of that effort on them. All of that knowledge, all of that revelation, all of that illumination was a waste because the majority of them have died in unbelief. And it's not new to Jesus' day. As the children of Israel were brought up out of Egypt, I think you could safely say two million people there. If there were 600,000 fighting men, that's men between 20 and 50, if all of those men had a wife and they had a child and they had a parent still alive over the age of 50, you're well over two million people that come out of Egypt. And out of the 600,000 fighting men, there were two men out of that number that God allowed to enter in. And by the Word of God in Hebrews, the rest of those died in unbelief. Now, there are people that hold the doctrine that they were saved, though they died in the wilderness. They just didn't get to enjoy the blessings of God. Now, that's the way it's put. But I put it this way, I don't know of anybody that's going to die in unbelief and be saved at the end. That's against Scripture. They died in unbelief. So did God waste all of that effort bringing them out of Egypt for them to die in the wilderness? It'd be easy to say, yeah, that was a waste. But it was not a waste. Though the multitude died in the wilderness, God still brought a multitude in and He preserved the line from there to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul says this, verse 6, not as though the Word of God hath taken none effect. Don't sit back and say, well, God's Word didn't do anything for those people. It was wasted. That's not what's going on. And we've got Scripture in Isaiah. You know, as a teacher or as a preacher, as 
as anybody really that tries to handle the Word of God, the devil would like to whisper in your ear that you've wasted your time this morning. Nobody listened. Nobody heard. Nobody repented. Nobody moved. There was nothing that came of it. Your words probably weren't even heard and you've wasted your time. But God says in Isaiah, so am I going to believe the devil? Am I going to believe what God's revealed in His Word? That my Word shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish. So God's Word is accomplishing the work that He has sent it to accomplish. And it is prospering in that very thing. The Word of God is not being uh, rejected and it's not being wasted, but the purpose of God, whatever that purpose may be, the purpose of God is being met and completed by the Word of God every time. The Word of God is never wasted. Never. So they are not all Israel which are of Israel. You know that God, by His Word, never intended to save the whole crowd. Now, there's only two things you can say here. Is God did intend to save everybody and He failed in the majority of cases. Now, could that be the case? Has God failed? and what God intended to do. Can that happen? Or that God sent His Word and He saved those that He intended to save and He darkened those that He intended to darken. So He's going to bring it on down, and we looked at all this last time. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So not every son of Abraham was saved. They were not. He prayed, Oh, that Ishmael could stand before thee. That Ishmael could be the one. That he could be chosen. God said, I've, I've not chosen him. It's Isaac. Send him and Hagar on. Now that was the answer of God to Abraham. God did not say, okay Abraham, I'll do what you want. God did what He wanted. And so, it could be said though, and we said last time, it could be said, well, Ishmael was not born of Abraham's wife. He was born of a handmaid and an Egyptian and that's why that Ishmael was rejected. He was illegitimate. And God's not going to choose children that are illegitimate. So that's what happened there. That could easily be said. And it would be very hard to argue with that point of view. Because that's, that's right. That's what happened. But we have the next example of Isaac who married Rebekah. Isaac was by every Word of God we can find, the chosen son of Abraham. And Rebekah was, if we believe the account in Genesis, she was the chosen wife by the very hand of God
to marry Isaac. God brought the servant of Abraham right to Rebekah. He didn't talk to another woman down there. God brought him right to Rebekah, brought him right to her house, and brought her from that country back to Isaac. It was all the plan of God. And the, the servant said, God's caused me to prosper in this work. And he was thankful to that end. So both then are where they are by the hand and by the work of Almighty God. And she's going to be pregnant, not of two different men. She's going to get pregnant by one man, Isaac, and she's going to have in her twins, two boys, Jacob and Esau. And he says in verse number 11, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of Him that calleth. Now I realize this, this is a hard pill to swallow. When you get it down, it's a blessing and a strength to your soul. I promise that. But I'm not upset if you have a hard time chewing it up. Because I believe all of those that are saved, they have a hard time truly coming to the understanding that it's all by the hand and by the plan of Almighty God. But this verse, I don't know how else you're going to say it. The children being not yet born, so they were not born, they had not done any good or any evil. So what's being manifested there? That their works has nothing to do with it. The nature of man is to say, well, God saw Jacob that he would believe and God saw Esau that he would not believe and that's why God chose one over the other. That's the way that this would be explained by a multitude of people. But by the book right here in Romans, in the New Testament, written by Paul the Apostle, as he was moved upon by the Spirit, the Bible says that works had nothing to do with it. They had not done any work. They were not even born yet, but were in the womb when God told Rebekah that the elder's going to serve the younger. And it was not God foreknowing their works or what they were going to do in life because the Bible says they were not yet born, neither done good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. It's not going to be Jacob that's going to choose God, but God is going to choose Jacob. Now that's what this verse says. God is manifesting that it's not by works. Now man says, well, that's not right. How can that be righteous. How can that be equitable to every man? And where that thought comes from is a complete misunderstanding of who and what we are. That thought leads me, and really to have that thought, 
I've got to have the thought that there's something good about me. In order for me to think this is unfair, I have to say, well, God, there's good redeeming qualities found in everybody. Now, is that the truth? I believe in people that are saved, that's been in this way any length of time, and that God's illuminated any bit of the Scripture too, you could realize that there was no redeeming quality in me. Well, if there's not in me, there wasn't in you either. Because by the Word of God, in Romans chapter number 3, there is none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all turned out of the way. They've all become filthy. There is none good. No, not one. So where is the redeeming quality? Where is the good works of man that God's going to choose based on? If we are all, as Romans 3 says, if we are all lumped together as sinful and wretched, and God's going to do what's fair to me, what is it that I'm going to receive? Eternal destruction in hell. That's what I've earned. And that's what is fair to me. But this salvation was purchased not because God was required to do so. If I do it because I'm required to then where is love and compassion and mercy? There's, there's a lot of false doctrines in our world today. The thought that God has to give everybody the same opportunity, that's disproven in the Word of God. Everyone does not have the same opportunity. Uh, there's, there's Scripture, the Lord Jesus says, and I don't have where it is wrote down. It is there. You can find it. The Lord Jesus says that if the works that were done in thee, Bethsaida and Chorazin, if those works were done in Sodom, Gomorrah, if they were done in Tyre and Sidon, those cities would have repented long ago. Now, there's a, that's, that's a lot of killing of doctrine that people hold today. So in those verses, God's saying they would have repented, but I did not give them the opportunity. Do you see that? If the works done in you were done there, they would have repented. But they didn't get that opportunity that you've got. And He also says... So there is a difference in opportunity. So who chose that? But you know what now? There's nobody in the house and there's nobody in churches anywhere in our world that would say it was unfair for God to destroy Sodom. Those people deserve to be destroyed. Well, there is the whole world deserving of being destroyed. And there is Jacob and Esau 
Esau was a vain man, profane man in the Word of God in Hebrews. He was a sinful and a wicked and an unpious man. And Jacob was a thief and a liar and a subplanner and one that was willing to sacrifice everybody else for his gain. It didn't bother him a lick to steal from Esau. Didn't bother him a lick to, to talk him out of his birthright. It didn't bother him any to, to steal from his father-in-law. And when Jacob got a taste of his own medicine from his father-in-law, he didn't think much of it. And so, both were wicked. And God chose to have mercy on one. Now that's what happened. God chose to be merciful unto Jacob. Did Esau get the same opportunity that Jacob had? Did God appear to Esau in the wilderness? Did God meet with Esau down by the brook? Did God speak to Esau and reveal the ladder between earth and heaven unto him as he did unto Jacob? He absolutely did not. God did not do that. To say that He did is to add things to the Scripture that God provided us that is not there. So does God have to speak one time with everybody on the face of the earth? Everybody's got to have a chance. Where is that in the Word of God? If you can find me a verse where God explicitly states that, I'll back up and agree with you. But you're not going to find that in the Word of God. God is not obligated to speak to me. God's not obligated to send His Son for me. But you know what it was? It was His mercy and His compassion and His grace and His mercy that provided a sacrifice for my sins. Jesus came with no requirement. His hands were not tied. The law did not require him to die, but he died because of his mercy and his love for mankind. For God so loved the world. God was not forced, but he loved sinners and his elect that he sent his son to sacrifice himself that they could be redeemed from sin. So God, the Bible says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. We, we turned and looked at that last time. That is straight out of the Old Testament. Paul is not making this up as he goes along. This is not a new doctrine that's suddenly been invented by the apostles. This is the way it's been all through the Old Testament. So listen, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? So here is what man says as he becomes aware of this doctrine. As you walk down through this scripture, now man in his flesh says, that is unfair. The word righteousness here, it means equity. So equity, that means we're going to be equal with everybody. And so man says, that's not equal with everybody. That's unfair to me. 
Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God somehow being unfair, unjust, and unrighteous in His dealings with man? Well, he answers it here, God forbid. Because if fairness is what man wants, and justice is what man wants, is it... Now really, really, is it fair that Jesus suffered like He did, that me, the guilty party, could go free. Was that fair? Is it just that an innocent man was slain so that a guilty man could be set free? Was that just? Justice was served, but boy, the justice that I deserved, I did not receive. So man that proclaims justice and wants fairness, really what the foolishness of man is saying is I want to die for my sins. That's not the case. There is no unrighteousness with God. For He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Exodus chapter number 33. Now we are in here the oldest books of the Bible. Exodus chapter 33 verse 19. And he said, this is God, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will shew mercy on whom I will shew mercy. So who's God going to be gracious and merciful with? On whom He will. To determine. That word means to determine. If you look over in chapter 34... Verse number 6, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Are all those things true of God? Is God long-suffering? If He was not, we would have been cut off. Is He merciful? Merciful would implete that God does not give what's deserving of speedily. Boy, if God had no mercy, then the moment that I sinned, the first time I'd be cut off and in the judgment. But God is merciful. Is He gracious? My God, what grace that God has provided a race of fallen and rebellious and sinful man. Abundant in goodness and truth. Is God abundant in goodness? So see, all of these are true. But that's not the end of verse number 7. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Is God forgiving If we could have a list 
of individual sins numbered that God has forgiven in the saved people that sit right here. It would be an astounding list. I tell you, the only conclusion that you could come to is what a forgiving God that He is. All of these are true, yet that will by no means clear the guilty. Is God that way as well? You better believe it. God is merciful. He is long-suffering. And He is good. And He is kind. But God is also a consuming fire. He's a God of justice and judgment. And He will deal mercifully and kindly and good and be forgiving. But He will bring fiery judgment on the unbelieving world as well. So all of this then is true. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and fourth generation. Now is it fair? This is the way God is. How good, how merciful, how long-suffering that God is. In Matthew chapter 20, now here's a a scripture I believe we're all pretty familiar with. Jesus is going to give a parable in the first portion of this chapter. And it's of the fellow that's out looking for workers. And he comes early in the morning and there's men that's idle in the marketplace. And he says, go to work in my field and I'll pay you a penny for the day's work. They agree and they go to work. He comes back at the third hour of the day, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. So at all times, He comes, He sees laborers, He hires them, He says, I'll give you a penny to go work in my field. They all agree to that deal, and they all go to work. Now there were some that had been there for eleven hours. There were some that had been there for one hour. But the end of the day comes and He brings them all before Him and He gives them all a penny. Now, at the first hour of the day, when this good man went out to the marketplace and he said to those fellas, look, if you'll go work in my field today, I'll give you a penny. They were absolutely fine with that arrangement. That was not an unfair deal. They agreed to that and said, yeah, we'll go work for a penny. But when it come to the end of the day now, their mind is changed. You know why? Because they've been there through the heat of the day. And here's people that they ain't even worked long enough to break a sweat. And you're telling me that they're going to make the same thing that I make. Look at how much harder that I've worked than they have. So, what's this say? It's not about works. Not Not in the least bit is it about works. But it's of God. But now they're angry. They complain and they murmur. And the good man says this now uh, in verse 13. Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? 
Did he cheat them? He paid them exactly what was agreed. Now, if God saves, and this is going to be a little sidebar, but I tell you, the, the day I got saved, I was in such a place by God's grace and illumination and in such fear and dread of going to hell, I just begged God to save me and I'll do whatever. I mean, if you'll just deliver me from my sin and set me free, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Now that was then. But you let the heat of the day go on and you say, wait a minute, God. Why do I have to do this studying when other people don't have to do this? Why do I have to suffer? Why do I have to be hated and rejected by a multitude when other people, they don't have to endure that? It's not fair. It's not fair to me. Hmm. Ain't that the truth? See, that's the foolishness of the flesh. That's ignorance, silliness. I tell you, God saved me. There's no greater payment than a man could have than to be delivered from his sins, set free from his guilt, escape the wrath and the anger of God at the end of this life. What more could God pay a man? And if somebody gets saved at 85 years old and they die the next year, and I suffer my whole life and they cut my head off at 60, we're going to get the same thing. You know why? Because I'm going by the merit and the quality of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're going by the merit and the quality of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I do has nothing to do with what I'm getting. I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Now that's the Word of God. I've done thee no wrong. But now this is the verse that I wanted to get to, so we'll come off the sidebar. Take that that is thine and go thy way, and I will give unto this last even as unto thee. I don't care what you think. I'm not doing you wrong. Is it not lawful for me to do with what, what I will with mine own? This is my money, and it's lawful for me to do whatever I want to with it. If I want to pay you more, it's lawful for me to do that. But I'm paying you what we've agreed. Go on and hush your mouth. Now that's what he said. Could God not say the same thing to each and every one of you? He certainly could. That's what he's saying here. It's lawful for me to do with mine as I see fit. And yet now, today, in the opinions of many, God can't do what He will with what's His. But we determine what God does with what's His. I tell you, that's not the case. God can do whatever He wants to. If He wants to deliver me from sin, He can do that. And if He wants to cut me down and destroy me, He can do that. And either one of them is just and fair and right. Well, now, wait a minute. You're saying that people that want to be saved can't be saved 
Because they're not chosen. I'm going to ask you something. How many times in your life have you ever seen that? Have you ever witnessed that? No, you know why? Esau, Esau was sad that he didn't get the firstborn's blessing. Esau wasn't angry with Jacob being God's chosen. Because in Esau's mind, he was exactly what he wanted to be. And that's the way our world is. There would be no one interested in salvation except God illuminate them unto that need. Well, I don't believe that. Well, Romans 3, again, where he lumps all of mankind together, he says there is none that seeketh after God. Now, I may be a tryhard. I may want to be righteous in myself. But that is, that's not me seeking God. That's me doing that for my glory before you. Would you not say that's what Paul was doing before that he was saved? He said, I profited in my people's religion. He was there for his profit, for his gain, and for his goodliness, and he was not seeking God. And the man, Paul the apostle, did not seek God until God called him. And you didn't either. Whether you were in the world or you come to church every service, you weren't on your face daily seeking after God and His redemption until God opened your eyes to the fact that you were lost and undone. Then you wanted to be saved. Before then, you were saved in your own mind. See, it's, it's a false opinion of what we are that causes a lot of these doctrines. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that sheweth mercy. So it is not reliant upon what I do what I'm doing, or what I'm going to do. It's not determined by what I want to do, what I will to do, and what I attempt to do. It's not based on the will. It's not based on the effort. But it is God that sheweth mercy. We see a a kind of, right along this line, maybe it's, Difficult at first to see how they tie together. In the Gospel of John, chapter number 1, the Bible says in verse 13, "...which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." These children that were born into the family of God, it was not because of their family lineage, It was not because they had willed it and determined it in themselves. It was not because, and here's another false doctrine that we can throw under the bus, it was not because the church got together in a revival meeting and said, we're all going to pray for that boy and God's going to save him because of what I do. That's a lie. That don't work. 
It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. It's not of blood. It's not of the will of the flesh. And it's not of the will of man, but it's of God. Everything comes from the hand of God. And folks, if it's based on what we do, then we are miserably failing in getting our people saved. I tell you, men get up and want to preach and bash men down and you need to be doing this and that and the other to get your people saved and they've got family sitting right at the house that's lost and undone as well. I tell you, if it's, if it's me that does it, if it's the church that does it, then what are we doing? I'll tell you where we're at, folks. We're in a place of sorrow. We've let our people down. You want to believe that doctrine? Then why aren't your people saved? We better try harder, hadn't we? It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but it's of God that sheweth mercy. It's not of the will of the flesh, it's not of blood, and it's not of the will of man, but it's of God. You know who's going to be redeemed? Those that God determines to show mercy and compassion on. What I do to them, the God's truth, I will not move them any closer to salvation by my power and by my strength. I can't. I'm powerless to bring them to redemption. Well, then why would we serve God? Because He plucked me out of the fire of hell and set me in His kingdom and God moved into my heart and to my life and God will not let me get away from that. You don't have to dangle the carrot of my people getting saved in order for me to follow God. I don't have to dangle the carrot of getting an extra crown on my head in order for me to follow God. I follow God because of what God has done in the depths of my soul. Everything else is a lie. It's of the flesh. It's of the work of man. This is liberating doctrine. Man would like to lay grievous burdens on shoulders of people and they not move them with their little finger. Man would like to beat man down into the dirt for his failures when his own people are dying lost and undone. Well, if my people's dying because of me, then your people's dying because of you. You'd better get to praying. I tell you, thank God it ain't on my shoulders. My God, how would we live day by day if the weight of salvation was on me? I tell you, there wouldn't be nobody saved. There wouldn't be a soul saved. But God covenanted not with Abraham. He didn't say, Abraham, you do, and then I'm going to do. God put Abraham to sleep and he went between the animals, and God said, Abraham, I'm going to do despite what you do. And that's what God does. 
I tell you, God saves and redeems our people in spite of our failure and our wickedness and our sinfulness. God works in spite of man. And the God's truth, it's a miracle that He would use any one of us to do that work. But glory and honor be to the name of God for His wondrous works of compassion and mercy among men. There are saved people on the earth today. There will be at the end of time, not because we buckled down and done it, but because God has determined it to be that way. God will get the work done. There must first be a willing mind. I've heard that Did I have a willing mind? I believe he could tell you. As he first began to ask me, why don't you teach for me this Sunday? Did I have a willing mind? I don't know how many times he asked. Not doing it. You know what that was? That was me. You know where the willing mind came from? I tell you, the Lord changed my mind. Boy, Paul, he had a will in mind first, didn't he? Paul was going to throw him in prison. But boy, God gave him a will in mind. See, this is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but it is God that sheweth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might shew my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Exodus chapter number 9. This is a quote of Old Testament Scripture. It's found in Exodus chapter number 9, verse number 14. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to shew in thee my power that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Boy, that's hard words. Pharaoh, I brought you to this place and I've brought you to this day that I might destroy you, that my name would be glorified. Is that not exactly what God said through Moses and what God says here in Romans? But you know, there's nobody saying, well, God, that was unfair the way you treated Pharaoh. Was it unfair? How did Pharaoh treat him? Exactly. It was not unfair. But it was God's purpose. Well, God rejected Pharaoh because Pharaoh rejected God. Well, did God accept you because you accepted God of yourself? You accepted God of yourself 
Because God called you to that. So, listen to the next verse. Therefore hath He mercy on whom He will have mercy, and whom He will, He hardeneth. You mean to tell me that God's behind both of these cases. Here's yet another doctrine that you can throw under the bus. Glorifying and exalting the devil and his power as if he has power over God. Now if man rejects the gospel and dies lost, is it because the devil has beat God in that case and in that instant? Now if that's true now, and if it's true that the majority, 90, 95% of 7 billion people are lost and on the road to hell, then boy, the devil's winning a lot more than God is. Ain't he? That, that's not true. You see, the devil, God created him. The power the devil's got, God gave that to him. The authority the devil's got, God give that to him. The work that the devil does, God allows him to do that. It's true. If the devil had power of himself, he would not have to go and say, look God, I can't get to Job. You're going to have to let me in. No, he'd go tear the wall down and go in. But he's powerless of himself. He cannot act outside of God allowing him to act. And so, who's resulting in the hardening? I tell you here, you tie this back, and we're almost out of time. You tie this back with a Scripture where we looked that the Word of God prospers and will not return void, but will accomplish you can tie that Scripture right here. Well, what have you got to say if nobody answers? I tell you, God did not send Moses down to Pharaoh's house to convert him and save him. God said, Moses, I'm sending you down there and I'm going to destroy them that my name will be glorified. True. You see that? I mean, that's the Word of God. So the word that came from Moses, and there was a word sent to Pharaoh. He cast down the serpent, or the rod, and it became a serpent, and it gobbled up the others. He took blood out of the river, or water out of the river, and poured it on the land, and it became blood. And then he made all of the water in Egypt to be blood. And then he made the dust to be lice. And then he covered the ground up with frogs out of the river. And then he brought flies and He brought hellfire out of the sky, and He brought darkness, and He brought the death of the firstborn. Was there not opportunity to let the people go? Did Pharaoh let the people go? Why did Pharaoh not let the people go? That is exactly the case. He'll have mercy on whom He'll have mercy. And whom He will, He hardeneth. You can look. We're there in Bible study, if you listen. But Ahab the king going to war. And he's got these 400 prophets of the devil 
And they're there and they're saying, you go and win. Go and have victory. Go and prosper. You're going to be blessed. And Jehoshaphat says, is there not a prophet of the Lord? I mean, this is a good show, but I want to hear something from God. And Ahab says, there is a prophet, and he's a prophet of God, but I hate him because everything he says is bad about me. You know the truth, people hate the gospel because when they come and hear the gospel, they're found to be sinners. Is that the gospel's fault? That is a revelation what they are. That's what the gospel brings. So they call him. His name's Micaiah. They call him and bring him in, and they tell him before he gets there, now listen, Micaiah, you better fall in line, and you better say what everybody else is saying. Don't speak evil. You come and say and tell the king to go and prosper. That's all people want today. They need a pat on the back and they need to be told they're all right. And you know where it's sending them? Ahab's going to go out to battle where he's going to eat an arrow and he's going to bleed out and die. Man wants a pat on the back so that he can go out from the Word of God and fall into eternal destruction. Foolishness. Micaiah comes in and he says, go and prosper. Now Ahab knew. I don't know how he said it. I don't know if he said it sarcastically or if he said it seriously. Either way, Ahab knew what he said wasn't the Word of God. Ahab had a little knowledge. And Ahab said, now I've told you before that you only speak what the Lord tells you. And Micaiah gives a parable. The Lord said, how can I destroy Ahab? And there was a lying spirit that said, I'll go and I'll be in the mouth of his prophets and I'll deceive him and I'll cause him to go. And God said, you'll work and send him on the journey. God sent... Now who is the lying spirit? Who is the liar and the father of it? It's the devil. You're telling me God uses the devil? You better believe that God uses the devil to accomplish His purpose and His will. Remember the man legion? Remember the man born blind? Who sinned that these men should be in this case? I tell you, they're there for the glory of God. And that's why man is here. We're here for the glory of God. That lying spirit, it deceived Ahab. Ahab neglected the Word of God. Micaiah did say, he said, you're going to go and die and you're not going to come back. And one of the false prophets hit him in the face. This is all in the last chapter of 1 Kings. You can find it. One of the false prophets hit him in the face and said, when did the Spirit leave me and go to you? And Micaiah said, you'll know it's the truth when you go and hide. This is coming to pass. This is the Word of God. And they sent him to prison. Ahab said, send him to prison. Feed him with the bread and water of affliction. Now what that is, they're going to throw him in the dungeon and they're going to feed him just enough bread and just enough water that he wouldn't die. So that he's constantly thirsty and he's constantly starving to death, but he's never able to die out of that condition. Go put him in the prison, feed him with bread and water of affliction until I come back. 
And the last word of the prophet was, if you come back here safely, then you know that God did not speak by me. Now Ahab's going to go and disguise himself. He's going to look like a common soldier. They're not going to know who he is. To make a long story short, an unnamed Syrian draws a bow at a venture at a distance and fires. He don't know who he's shooting at. Don't know whether he's going to hit anybody. But I tell you, God put that arrow, the Bible says, in a joint of the armor. He's wearing metal armor that an arrow is normally going to hit and break, but it's got joints in it so he can move. He may have been leaned one way. God put it in a joint of the armor. And there Ahab bled out. And they washed his chariot out in Samaria and the dogs licked his blood. Just exactly what God said was going to happen, happened. That's a long way around. But God uses the devil. God uses His Word. And whom God will, He shows mercy and to whom God will, He hardeneth. God does as He sees fit. Paul says of the Gospel that God always maketh us to triumph. Unto some we're the savor of life unto life, and unto others the savor of death unto death. The same Gospel, the same preaching, the same message, the same preacher, the same spirit. Some people believe it, and some people deny it. I tell you to some, the gospel is life. <laughs> to others, it's a stumbling stone. Who determines that? Therefore, have he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Now I'm going to tell you what kind of heart that should give me. Glory to God for having mercy on a wicked sinner like me. I don't believe with a shred in me that there's one person that's truly been saved that says, I deserve to be here. I believe, as Paul said, that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. That was in this book of Romans. That's the way man is. There's nothing good about man, but it's God's Word.